Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients but big medicine. This is the second episode in our series on firearm violence. If you missed the first episode, go on back and take a listen. But as a reminder, we talked about how to reframe our thinking about this issue and where our place as medical providers is in this discussion. Today, I gathered two amazing Canadian physicians who have done research and policy work on firearm injuries and specifically youth violence to get a sense of how the issue and the discussion differ there compared to the U.S. We'll also spend a significant amount of time discussing one very successful program for reducing rates of youth violence that has gone on in Manitoba and talk about the surprising rates of both intentional and unintentional injury from airsoft guns and BB guns, which we don't typically think of as firearms, but can be just as dangerous and are less regulated. We'll start by having them introduce themselves. So my name is Carolyn Snyder. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Manitoba. I'm also a staff physician at the Winnipeg Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg. And finally, I started and evaluated a program for youth injured by violence called the Emergency Department Violence Intervention Program. And I'm Natasha Saunders. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. And I'm a staff uh, physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. And I am an adjunct scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, also in Toronto. There, I do a lot of research on injuries and injury prevention in children and youth with a particular focus on firearm injuries. And this will be the second episode in our series on firearm injuries and and what the role of specifically the emergency room is and kind of how we can approach it. Most of my audience is U.S.-based, and I wanted to get some input from some folks that weren't based in the U.S. to also get their opinion and see if we can come at this from a different angle. So the first thing that, that we're going to start out, and this will be a general question to both of you, is do we have any general data on rates of firearm violence or firearm-related uh, mortality in Canada, and, and sort of where does that information come from? So we do have some data on in Canada. It's quite uh, poor and incomplete. Um, most of our data is related to firearm fatalities, which comes from Statistics Canada. So basically, when somebody fills out a um, death certificate, um, it, it gets registered, and Statistics Canada records the, the reason for death. Unfortunately, though, we have very little data on firearm injuries, and uh, in particular in children and youth, Firearm deaths only make up 6% of all firearm injuries, so it's a gross under underestimate. We don't have um, national data. We only have provincial data. And the lack of data for that, is that just because nobody's been collecting it? Or is there some policy or political barrier to collecting that? So there's no uh, policy or political barrier to, to collecting it. It's just that we don't have any forum for recording all of that data. So across the country, we do record reasons for hospitalizations. And in some provinces, we record reasons for emergency room visits. Nationally, we record deaths, but there's no unified system to ascertain all the firearm injuries across the country. That's a problem with all injury. Non-fatal injury is very poorly recognized, really, frankly, across the world. Injury surveillance could be much, much stronger uh, everywhere. And so uh, we run into that problem, being able to use data to advocate for change because we don't have strong injury surveillance. 
you know, the data that I have access to is also mortality-based, which is a lot of what we have in the States. And, and I think the last number that I could find actually came um, from a while ago from the policy, the position paper that you put out, Carolyn, I think you were the, the first author on from CAEP that listed the number at somewhere around 2.4 per 100,000 per year that uh, were killed by firearms. But that, that's the most accurate data that I could find. And it's it hasn't changed much. Homicide of is only about 0.6 per 100,000. The great majority are from due to suicide. Which is similar to the problem that, that we deal with is that somewhere around three quarters or more are, are actually self-inflicted rather uh, rather than one of the other causes. In Canada, one of the provinces that we do have much more complete data is in Ontario, where we have the ability to link individuals for emergency room data, hospital data, and death data. So we do have relatively complete data in Ontario for firearm injuries. And those numbers for across all injuries are around 12.4 per 100,000 unintentional injuries and about 3.6 per 100,000 intentional injuries per year in males. So I'm wondering if you can describe, especially for the, the listeners outside of Canada, how is firearm ownership handled in Canada? What do you have to do to legally possess a firearm? And, and is it different based on handguns versus long guns? In Canada, under the Firearms Act, you must have a license to possess a firearm and to buy ammunition. And this is for all kinds of firearms. It's renewable every five years. And in order to get that license, you must have passed the Canadian Firearms Safety Course. The cost for that license is about $60 to apply unless it's a restricted firearm like a handgun or semi-automatic firearm. And in those cases, it costs a little bit more. I think it's $80 to apply and you have to have additional training courses. We also have a very long list of prohibited firearms. The process of obtaining a license includes questions on previous charges or convictions, protection orders. Others in the house that are prohibited from possessing uh, firearms includes a question around uh, recent threats or attempted suicide suicides or treatment for depression or alcohol or drug dependence. All of this with the limitation of currently of about five years. They ask about any reports to police, any recent divorces, separation, breakdowns of uh, significant relationships in that time. And then after that application is received, there's an automatic 28-day waiting period that's required. And often it can take up to 45 days for the application to be to be approved for someone. You need to provide references. And if there's been a conjugal partner anytime in the last two years, they have to sign this application form. And if they haven't signed it, then the chief firearms officer is required to notify uh, that a license has been applied for. So it's quite rigorous compared to the states. Your current partner or or an ex, if you had had a divorce, something like that, those people are either required to sign off on your application or have to be formally notified that you have applied for that license? Yes, absolutely. And, it, and interestingly, even in the last few weeks, there's been discussion about strengthening this. Um, these backyard checks, especially the feeling that's coming through is that five years may not be long enough, that they want to make it a bit more rigorous that they want to work with provinces to better understand mental health histories because right now it's self-report and see whether there's a way to better flag those that are not reporting mental health histories on this application, but in fact do have a significant mental health history that should be a part of this process. And strengthening laws around vendors' ability to ensure that buyers have a valid license. 
I think some that the last few points that Carolyn has made there are really important. Uh, although we do have these background checks that are potentially more rigorous than in the United States, they really do rely on self-report. And there's not really a visit, an, an avenue for physicians to necessarily advocate for um, their patient safety. So for example, if I have a 15-year-old patient who discloses to me that they're suicidal, yet they have a firearm in the home, I don't really have a, a good way of reporting that to, um, to ensure that the firearm can be removed from the home. We do have the discretion in Canada to actually inform police if we have concerns about behavior or mental health around potential to harm oneself. So there are avenues, it's just it's much more difficult than, say, other avenues, for example, like um, transportation. If you think somebody's unsafe to drive, it's very easy to have their license suspended. But um, when there's just a firearm in the home and, you know, somebody has passive suicidal ideation and to get that firearm removed may not be as easy. The other thing is there's no mention of children or youth in the home, which I think when it comes to getting a firearm license, people have to take a, an education or safety course. And there's there's not a lot of emphasis on ensuring safety of children and youth in the home. I mean, everybody has to theoretically store their firearms safely, but whether or not that's actually complied with is pretty limited and poorly enforced. There's a lot of places, and this happens in the States too, where there are laws that are in existence regarding safe storage and, and access to firearms whenever there's a child in the home. I think they're very inconsistently enforced. And it sounds like that is uh, potentially a, an issue for y'all as well. The other thing um, about firearms in Canada that um, I'm not totally sure of how it applies in the U.S., uh, Carolyn mentioned that there are some prohibited as well as restricted and then non-restricted firearms. But then there's this category of firearms that is essentially considered toys. So those are things like air guns or BB guns. And the cutoff to be considered a firearm based on Canada, the Canada Firearm Act is that it has to have a projectile velocity of at least 152 meters per second or 500 feet per second, which there are many stores in Canada that will sell a firearm with projectiles just below this velocity. And we know that that can penetrate eye, that can penetrate bone or skin. And there are children and youth or individuals who have been killed by air guns and BB guns. You're specifically referring to something like an airsoft gun. Yes. You can go into Walmart and buy one. You can buy one online and have it delivered to your house without any license. And they can certainly cause morbidity and mortality. I come at this mostly from a pediatric realm because that's the majority of the patients that I take care of. And so I'm wondering if you, if there is any data within any province or across Canada on how your rates of youth firearm violence are, whether they're increasing or decreasing, and if there are any known risk factors for them. So in Canada, we don't necessarily col collect the rates in the same way that they do in, in the States, in part because so much of our youth violence is non-fatal and many of the provinces don't collect the non-fatal injury yet. It's a worldwide problem in terms of getting good injury surveillance data. But we do know a lot of the risk and protective factors. And recently we published a study in injury prevention on risk and protective factors in Manitoba on uh, for, for youth who are injured or killed by violence. The key risk factors are male sex, low income, either individually low income for the family or living in a neighborhood with lower socioeconomic status, any prior criminal charge for the individual, but also separately from that, even if they just live in a neighborhood with a high level of assault. And those were criminal charges just across the board, not specifically prior uh, violent criminal charge? No, across the board. And so we don't really know where the chicken or the egg really is, is it? We do know there's a huge overlap between victims and perpetrators, and that's been shown in many jurisdictions. We also showed risk factors of ever having been in protective care and whether somebody identifies as, as First Nations or Aboriginal in, in Manitoba. 
Manitoba. So those were all uh, strong risk factors in our study. I need to jump in here with a quick clarification before Carolyn gets to the rest of her points. She works in an institution where about 80% of their patient volume identifies as Indigenous or First Nations. And so she's going to get into some facts that relate specifically to that. And I wanted you to know why. We actually have a large proportion of our young people who are Aboriginal who are in protective care or have been in protective care, and it's a it's a major issue that's been identified in in our jurisdiction. And we when showed, you say protective care, is that a youth who has been removed from their home or placed institutionally because of worries about danger to themselves? More that they've either been reduced from their home or identified through the child welfare system, okay. and the families being provided services and being monitored. And then we did show protective factors of being involved in education, uh, whether they'd graduated already or whether they're actively enrolled in education. So that was a multi-level analysis that we did recently. I think that's interesting that having been in protective care makes you more likely to to be involved in some sort of future violence, which fits some of the narrative of the overlap between perpetrator and victim. I think one other risk factor uh, is to think about is in terms of immigrant status. So um, I've been doing some work around immigrants and risk of injuries. And when it comes to firearm injuries, um, immigrants actually have about half the rates of uh, firearm um, injuries from unintentional injuries uh, compared with non-immigrants. Um, but when we look at assault or violent injuries, um, the rates are, are not different um, in general between um, the general immigrant population and the non-immigrant population. But when we dive a little bit deeper into the types of refugees and where they come from, we see that immigrants who are refugees have about a 40% higher risk of being a victim of a firearm assault compared with non-immigrants. And then if you come from regions of the world, including Africa or Central America, your risk is three and four times higher uh, for being a victim of firearm assault compared with uh, non-immigrants. So there's these select immigrant populations that are at higher risk of being a victim of, of an assault. You know, I think the biggest question, and this is what I've been trying to get at with this whole series, has been harm reduction. So how do we go about actually reducing the number of people or the the times that they experience some sort of violent injury, either as a perpetrator or as a, as a victim? And do you know of any programs that have been tried or that you have tried yourself to reduce the rate of youth violence? There are a number of great programs, both in Canada and the States, and in fact, worldwide now. In Manitoba, we started a program called EDVIP, the Emergency Department Violence Intervention Program. We modeled it after a number of programs in the states, uh, most closely to the San Francisco Wraparound Care Program. The way EDVIP works is when a young person is injured by violence, they're met in the emergency department by a support worker. All of our support workers have lived experience with violence. They themselves may have been in a gang or affected by violence as a young person themselves. They may have have family members involved in violence. They almost all live in the area of the city that is most affected by violence. All of our support workers identify as Indigenous themselves, and many of them are active in Indigenous ceremony. So when a young person comes to the emergency department, our support workers are called in, and they will sit with that young person for their entire visit in the emergency department, assuming the young person is open to it. The 
support worker will at that point start talking about the circumstances around their injury, but also around the young person li- person's lives. We meet them from a strength-based perspective, so it's very much dependent on the young person to identify the issues that they think put them at risk of future violence. And, and so the support worker will then go with the young person through their visit in the emergency department, but then we'll meet them the next day. They often end their visit after having helped them get home safely with, what are you taking your coffee and where can I meet you tomorrow at 1030? Where are you going to be? I'd like to bring there. And is your grandma or your mom going to be around? Is there some parent or somebody that you'd like to be with you when I, when I come find you and what do they take in their coffee and often the kids are caught off a bit guard but uh, caught off guard a bit but they often are very receptive to that and they almost always will show up that next day and then for the next year that support worker works with them along with the rest of our team we have an addictions counselor we have a s- social worker as well as part of this program and they work with them to address those issues so the Edvit program was born out of a finding that 20% of our people of our youth who come to our emergency department will come back with a subsequent violent injury within the next year. That number is pretty high, except that it's actually, it feels very high when you think about other medical problems or other injuries. And yet it's pretty standard for across the world, any other studies that have looked at that. And so we recently did a small randomized control trial of the EDVIT program. We had a wait list control. So after that first year, we called up the young people who were in the wait list control group and provided the intervention of EDVIT to them. And we showed a 10% absolute decrease from actually almost 25% repeat return rate for violent injury in the control group to 14.7% in the EDVIP group. We showed decreased visits for substance use and mental health. We showed an increase in education. We're about to get the data on their interactions with the justice system, so new charges in the in the subsequent year while they were part of the intervention. And interestingly, one of the things that was really important as an eMERGE doc was to look at the impact on the emergency department in that initial visit. All of us as eMERGE docs are very aware of the impact of overcrowding and increased likes of stay. And I knew that in order to be able to sell this kind of intervention, i.e. we're bringing in more people to work with our young people, there's going to be counseling at the bedside. Everybody was suspicious that this was just going to increase their Yeah, this is just going to like double or triple their stay, right? Oh, yeah. The last thing, like, and that's not our job, and this is not going to work, that kind of thing. We had a really surprising, pleasantly surprising result of a 40-minute on average decreased time in the emergency department when they had that support worker at their bedside with them. When I talked to some of our charge nurses about it, they said it became very evident right away that that liaison role in the emergency department was so important for a young person. Often these young people are there by themselves or they're so nervous about getting their sutures in because they look and act tough, but in fact, they're 16 years old and they're actually injured and they're hurt and they're scared. And so our support workers had a really big, again, like an auntie or uncle role in just helping them guide through that emergency department visit. So with an eye towards any other place that might want to start a similar program, how is it funded? So so funding is actually a, the biggest challenge all of us have. The, the best place to start is to go to the NNHVIP 
uh, website, the National Network of Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Programs. It was started out of Oakland and has, I think, now over 20 program member programs uh, uh, worldwide. Uh, we were one of the first non-U.S. programs, but there's some wonderful knowledge within the groups there. Uh, they're funded through a variety of different ways. Ours was initially funded as a research project. That randomized control trial was funded through the Canadian Institute for Health Research. We were then funded through our provincial government and unfortunately lost our funding within the last year. We're hoping to find out soon that it'll be refunded and you don't know some federal funding that might become available as well. But that is the constant challenge for programs like this. Yeah. Uh, despite showing great decreases, despite being able to show that we can spend a little bit of money to save a lot of money, um, often it's, uh, you know, a lot of our governments are, you know, <laughs> putting, di they're putting duct tape on a dialysis machine right now, right? It's, it's really hard for them to acknowledge the importance of preventive care. And so colleagues in the states that run these programs, sometimes it's on the budget of their, of their states. Sometimes it's privately funded and we're constantly trying to find, you know, some big donor that could really actually support a program. Yeah, and that, that's so frustrating for you to be able to show, a, a, you said, roughly 10% absolute reduction in return visits. I mean, that's an astronomical number for a absolute risk reduction. Um, oh, yeah. That like feels like it should be a no-brainer. Yes, right. and it, it did until I started to really understand the way politics works and and funding works. So we continue to... to to try and address this challenge. Well, and, as soon as I become independently wealthy, you'll be on my list. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a plan for how that's going to happen, but. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to explain lottery tickets to my seven-year-old the other day. She's like, I know, I'll buy lots of LOL dolls. I was like, no, no plastic. <laughs> no plastic crap. <laughs> Yeah, she can she can talk to the owners of all the beanie babies uh, who still thought that they were going to make a ton of money. Exactly. On that. I'm going to switch questions and gears just a little bit uh, to something that we've we've been talking about a lot amongst my colleagues is knowing that you know, there's lots of data that that having a firearm in the home increases the risk of accidental injury to a child and both both a visiting child and and a child that lives in the home. How do you ask families and parents whether they own firearms and talk to them when they're in your area to ask about uh, how they secure it. And then separately, if the family wants to know, how can they ask, you know, their kids play dates about the presence of firearms? Is that something you ever get into? And do you, do you have any strategies for it? Until very recently, we didn't realize the magnitude of the problem, in particular in children and youth and firearm injuries in Canada. Again, we are always overshadowed by the U.S. And so Canadians tend not to think of it as a problem, um, especially for sort of the average family where there's there doesn't appear to be a lot of risk factors. Firearm home ownership rates in Canada vary between about 18% to 34%, depending on which province you're in. Um, certainly in more rural areas, there's more um, firearm ownership. But traditionally, physicians don't or healthcare providers don't ask whether or not there's a firearm in the home. And I don't know many people who even think about sending their kids over to a, a friend's house and even considering that their friend might have a firearm in the home just because it, it's not something talked about very often and it, people don't think about it as often as we probably should. That being said, more recently, Recently, the with recognition that asking about firearms in the home to families with children and youth with mental illness and having that discussion is so critical to help increase the safety of that child suffering from a mental illness. As that's being recognized, 
pediatricians are being encouraged to ask about firearms in the home and, ca- and providing counseling around that. And in fact, the Canadian Pediatric Society, which is uh, the Canadian equivalent of the American Academy of Pediatrics, has recently put out a position statement with that being one of the, the main recommendations for physicians is that when you have a child or youth in the home who is um, struggling with mental illness, then um, you must ask about a firearm in the home or access to a firearm because we know that that's an effective way to start that discussion and then counseling the families around removing it. Because some, sometimes it's just a matter of the families not really making the connection of how sort of impulsive some of these decisions around suicide are um, and realizing that their child may be at risk and there's something that they can do to reduce that risk of death. There is good evidence that's come out of the U.S. actually to show that even just having that discussion with families to say that your child or your your teenager is is at risk of dying by a firearm injury and and have you considered alternative ways of safely storing your firearm is so powerful in terms of improving compliance with safe storage. So as physicians or healthcare providers, I think just having that discussion, asking about a firearm in the home, asking about safe storage and supporting them in their decision making around how to safely store that is so critical to helping reduce some of the firearm injuries we see. The other thing we've only become aware of really in the last year is the number of unintentional injuries from firearms that are not traditionally considered firearms. So again, the air guns and BB guns. And and in Canada, or in Ontario anyways, 75% of firearm injuries are unintentional, whereas 25% are from assault. This doesn't include the suicide injuries. And most of the time, these are from air guns and BB guns. And as I had mentioned before, these are also very easily capable of causing death or having a child lose an eye or lose a limb. So we have to start asking about that. We have to start pushing for greater regulations for child and youth safety to make sure that a child with a developing brain (laughs) who isn't aware of all the safety implications and ready to take on the responsibility of owning a firearm. And then the other thing that's really interesting that um, we've recently discovered in, in our data is that when it comes to firearm assaults, most of the time we don't actually know what type of weapon it was. So we don't know if it's a handgun or a rifle or an air gun, but for the weapons that we do know, there are just as many firearm assaults from a handgun as there are from air guns or BB guns in Ontario. We talk about handgun restrictions and making sure that these guns are out of the hands of children and youth, but the reality is it's it's easier to access an air gun or a BB gun. And, and so we really need to think about how to make these safer for, for children and youth and, and reducing access. And that's where we're going to leave it today. There was some great stuff in there that's definitely going to make me rethink how I discuss this issue with patients and their families, as well as who I bring the subject up with. I'll post links to all of the articles and programs that we referenced in the show notes. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review to help others find this podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 